am I enough? Hmm. Am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Do I fit in? That's really the question. It is dysfunctional to refuse to accept the possibility that you could learn from somebody or find success like they can. That's not, that's not healthy. Anytime, and this is, I think, a rule that works pretty well, anytime a person perceives that they have arrived, huh. that should be a warning sign. Welcome to the Four Fires Podcast, where we talk about winning in all four of the essential areas of life. And here's your host, Alan Kemper. Well, welcome to the Four Fires Podcast. My name is Alan Kemper, and I am going to be your host today. Just as a reminder, the Four Fires Podcast is a place where we talk about all things Four Fires, all of the important elements of life in your professional fire, your people fire, your physical fire, and your purpose fire. So um, if this is something that is interesting to you, if you've been following along uh, and you want to be a part of a community of people who are uh, living four-dimensionally, who are working intentionally to grow in each of those four areas, uh, check out the link in the description. You can find out more about the Four Fires tribe. Today, uh, we are having our friend Greg Moffitt back on the podcast. And uh, welcome, Greg. Thank you. So today, the topic that we're going to start on is this idea of respect versus disrespect. And Greg, before we dig into the topic, if this is the first people's first time hearing you, I want you to give people a little bit of an overview of who you are, what you do professionally, and then that will help us to frame the, okay. the topic of the conversation. Yeah, I am the Dean of the College of Social and Behavioral Science at Point University, and I've been there for 38 years. And during that period of time, I've also maintained a private practice. I'm a clinician. I'm a supervisor. I've been working with you off and on for a good long time. Done work in law enforcement. I've got a lot of experience from various areas of life. I've written, I don't know, a dozen or so books and several thousand articles, I think, mm-hmm. on varied topics in the mental health and psychology arena. Yeah. Yeah, it's always uh, it's always interesting when somebody says, I've written a dozen or so books uh, or so. Yeah, Greg's written more books than most people have read. So, Greg, today, as we think about this idea of respect versus disrespect, I want to understand a little bit more about the psychology and the mentality that happens in that space. Why is it that we tend to respect some people, or why is it that maybe we disrespect some people. Let me let me clarify what I'm thinking about there. I ran across a guy a couple of weeks ago. And there's a guy in his mid-50s. Great guy. I mean, I, I like him a lot. And I was telling him a little bit about the four fires and how one of the things we're trying to do is live intentionally in all of the important areas of life. And he was asking about what these areas were. And I told him, you know, it's about living well in your professional life. It's your ability to know what you're good at and be able to convert your craft into cash. And then we talked about the people fire and we talked about the physical fire and we talked about the purpose fire. And he seemed very comfortable talking about his people fire and his purpose fire. And he very quickly went to discounting or disrespecting people who both made a lot of money or seemed to have a high degree of professional success or people who seemed to have a pretty healthy body, specifically around weight. And his comment was, yeah, those people are greedy for the professional side and those people are shallow on the physical side. 
And I just left the conversation wondering why. Why, why, why so quick to discount those things? And I just wanted to kind of pick your brain for, for me and for the audience as we think about why do people do that and do, and do I do that? Well, the answer is probably yes. Um, just as a caveat, of, of course, we all know that people can earn respect mm-hmm. and earn disrespect because of clear overt behavior. So we're going right. to set that component aside. Um, in order to answer your question, we have to think about a little bit of neurology and don't go to sleep yet. I know I said a, a, a scary, boring word, but how our brains work, having a bit of an understanding about it can help us answer that question and maybe give us a little bit of a break on some things that our brains do for us and also know how to, to take control of that and overwrite it. Those mm. are the, the really two goals. So the, there's this area of your brain specifically, it's called the reticular formation. And you can think of this part of your brain like a receptionist or secretary at the entrance of a building. Okay. So first day on the job, the, the secretary's learning who's who, who comes and goes, how things work, where the coffee machine is, all the business of the day. Every day she's learning. And if you think of the perfect employee, she never has to be told twice. Mm -hmm. So once something's learned, that's the way it works. Mm -hmm. That's the way our reticular formation works. So starting around um, really infancy, but for sure around two to three, that area of our brain is constantly learning about how the world is. And we're trying to take that world and make sense out of it. So the first day that secretary's on the job, somebody comes in the door. Hi, I'm here to see Mr. Smith. Well, she has no idea what to do. Okay? But after a hundred of those, a thousand of those, it happens very, very quickly. She doesn't even have to think about it. Okay? Mr. Smith's calendar's here. Mr. Smith's out of the office today. So you can think about the first time you ever drove a car. You had all the instructions. So the secretary's reading the instructions. Okay, get the calendar out of the top drawer and put it on the desk and look for the day of the week and see, look for Mr. Smith's blue ink or whatever it is. So you sat in that car and listened to your dad or your driving instructor, seatbelt on, adjust the seat, adjust the mirrors, all the things you have to do. Mm-hmm. Well, after certainly after months or years of driving, you don't have to do any of that. That reticular formation does it for you. Okay. So you could do it with your eyes closed, literally. And in some ways, it makes us very efficient as drivers. So when you're driving down the road, you're not looking for things you looked for when you were a new driver. Mm-hmm. You're looking for what doesn't fit. Mm. So if I ask you, did you pass a blue car on the way in here? You'd say, I don't, I don't know, probably. You don't know because it's irrelevant. Your little secretary in your head has learned that that piece of data is not to be, you shouldn't be bothered by that. But if I said, did you see a car that was built like a hot dog? You would have definitely noticed that because the secretary in your head would have said, oh, there's a new piece of information. I need to know what to do with it and would check in with you. Mm. All that to say, um, the great psychologist Theodore Geisel, also known as Dr. Seuss, wrote a <laughs> fabulous little book called The Star-Bellied Sneetches. Okay. And I have my graduate students read this book uh, aloud in class. And what, what he portrays in this story is these creatures, some have stars on their tummy and some don't, and how it becomes this biased thing. The ones with stars were better than the ones without, and vice versa, and this tale goes on. We do the same thing with everything. Things that are salient, very easy mm-hmm. to see, um, skin color, mm-hmm. height, mm-hmm. gender, 
hair, mm-hmm. so very obvious components. That little secretary in your head is programmed to group stuff together. Okay. And from that, we get what we call biases or stereotypes. And then at its extreme and certainly dysfunction is bigotry and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a, a grain of truth to some of what we have as stereotypes. Men are. Mm-hmm. Well, we could come up with a list and probably find eight out of ten men probably. You know, not every man. And that's where we have to kind of override that secretary. But we do the same thing with other things that are maybe a little less salient, like wealth. Mm. Well, what does wealth mean? Mm. Wealth means more than I make. (laughs) You know, wealth means more than you make. So um, I don't know who the richest man in the world, but you take some, you know, Murdoch or Gates or one of those Mm -hmm. guys. I don't think they would deny that they're wealthy. But if you were to ask them the famous question, how much is enough, Mm -hmm. then it gets to be a little more vague because more more is the answer to the question. So when we start looking at people who work out or are healthy, people who are success, whatever that means, successful Mm -hmm. in business, we we have to recognize that that's been categorized at some point. People who are successful, probably who you were talking about, wouldn't call them successful. Mm -hmm. He would call them rich, greedy people. Mm -hmm. So categorized in that way, which there are certainly people who are that way. People who are into going to the gym, building muscle, you know, there are certainly people who are very shallow. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that little grain of truth. But the problem is, is that secretary in that context says all, mm-hmm. all people who are make more than me are greedy. All people who are in the gym are, mm-hmm. um, are shallow or mm-hmm. whatever. And never self-reflecting is that true of all people. So that's, that piece is one component. The other component that answers, addresses the question has to do with what's called social comparison. From okay. our very, very early days, we are comparing ourselves to others, our siblings, um, our parents, people that we go to school with, kids on our baseball team or dance troupe or whatever. And we're comparing our clothes, our shoes, how we wear our hair, whether we have freckles or not. And we're asking one very simple question over and over and over. Am I enough? Mm. Am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Do I fit in? That's really the question. People still exist, but it's managed. Mm. In the most immature and when I say frail or feeble, I'm talking from a psychological perspective, it possesses them. Mm. So I must be stronger so that I'm good enough. I must make A's so people will like me. I mm. must be religious because, or whatever. So that that's the dysfunctional piece of it. So as a clinician, when people come in and they start talking about their religion, it actually bothers me. It doesn't bother me that they're talking about religion. It's just way easier to talk about this external thing, no matter what their religion is, than to say, I. Do, do you follow? Mm-hmm. So that social comparison piece, which is what you're asking me about, the individuals thinking, oh, all rich people are, we've got the stereotype component, but then we've also got, well, I'm not there. And that's what we'll talk about maybe in a few minutes, the difference between what we think of as ideal self and perceived self. Yeah, Yeah, so social comparison... This is a, is there, is there a healthy piece of this? Is there a reason that we do this? Um, I mean, I, I kind of get the, you know, when you were talking about the, how the brain works and the, what you call it? The reticular formation. Mm-hmm. It seems like that there's a healthy model, like these berries over here. That's exactly are right. Good. These 
you know, berries that look like other things are bad so I can protect myself or, and we've had, we have experiences and I understand the putting them in boxes and how, is there a healthy version of social comparison? I mean, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Social comparison actually is what keeps us accountable to one another. So the lack of social comparison, which we see in antisocial personality disorder, these are the serial killers, serial rapists, they don't care what anybody thinks. So caring what other people think helps us maintain community. Okay. So we, we, call it by all kinds of names but you know your mother told you hang with the right crowd Mm -hmm. she was right because the crowd you hang with is going to affect you your social comparison if your crowd smokes weed you're more likely to smoke weed if your crowd goes to youth group you're more likely to go to youth group you know pick Mm -hmm. pick a measure so if you think in terms of community our social comparison um we know we get on the interstate how fast you drive on the interstate? Speed limit 70. You go with the flow of traffic. You go with the flow of traffic. That's exactly right. And generally, that functions pretty well. Mm-hmm. So if it's a dry day, traffic isn't necessarily super congested, speed limit 70, and you're driving 78, mm-hmm. something like that, you're probably in some ways safer than if you were driving the speed limit. Mm-hmm. That that you're not going to be in people's way, you're not going to pe- cause people to brake check, which might get people rear-ended. So that social comparison helps us work together mm-hmm. in a healthy way. When the people least, we're around are healthy. Gen- yes, generally. Um, so that's the function of it. The dysfunction of it is when it controls us. Mm. So we have to get the newest iPhone because everybody else has it. Mm. That's that's controlling your finances. Um, I must get this kind of uh, pair of shoes. I must drive that kind of car. And we see that people get themselves in serious financial trouble because of exactly that. Um, And this area of the state is pretty bad about that. You start getting questions from parents when their kids are brand new, born. What preschool are you going to put them in? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that social comparison is driving, oh, I must, now i got to make more money so I can send that kid to the right school, the proper school, or mm-hmm. whatever, when there's no real good psychological reason to do that, or developmental, for that matter. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the downside of it. Mm. Well, I'm sure, and we could probably go down a whole other rabbit hole around how social media has exacerbated social comparison, you know, with... Uh, that is probably the biggest my biggest criticism about social media, because we we tend to hang with people who think like us. Mm. And in the old days, prior to the digital world, that was limited pretty much to people in your geographic space. So people on your baseball team, at your school, stuff like that. And from that bigger group, you then self-selected people that you thought physically looked like you. Mm-hmm. And there's some interesting research just on attractiveness. People of a certain attractive level, if we would just line people up mm-hmm. and rate them, one to 10. Some people would generally be up in the 10 range, some people down the lower range and so forth. People tend to hang with people who are at their level of attractiveness. Mm -hmm. They don't realize they're doing it, but um, I know men do this when they're dating. They'll see somebody that they perceive as a higher level of attractiveness. They won't even ask them out Mm. because there's an assumption from the get-go, I don't qualify. And that's reflective of that social comparison. So let's say you've got a group of five friends. You go to a a movie that you really like, and you're telling them about, oh, I saw this new movie with so-and-so in it. You expect to hear from them, oh, I love that guy, or I saw that movie too. Some agreement, Mm -hmm. what we would call likes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. likes. 
if you don't get likes, and if you don't get likes enough, one of two things happen. Either you mold into their worldview, mm-hmm. assimilate into the group, or you just continue the friendship. So that then self-selects us to people who think like us. Well, now with social media, <clears throat> excuse me, the entire world is available. That's mm-hmm. the pool. And nearly anything anybody posts about any possible s- subject, somebody somewhere in the world is going to like it. And it doesn't take too many of those to confirm. So your friend that you talked to the other day, suppose he posted, uh, all rich people are just greedy. Mm. Like, 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 which confirms then self-comparison or social Mm -hmm. comparison. Yeah, you're right. And therefore, there's no need to go back and ask that question. Is my secretary lying to me? Mm -hmm. Secretary in my head. Do you follow? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're dead on. If we have this social comparison thing happening in our brains, and it there is a you know it's a gradient like we there's a healthy element of it, and it if everybody in my family gets up and goes to work at eight in the morning, maybe I should get up and go to work in the morning as well. Maybe that's a healthy thing if everybody in my family or all my friends go to the gym or whatever the thing is, it helps keep me. But then there's also the the extreme of that where I've become obsessed. So if you have that going along and, and, and what that, the underlying question that's kind of driving that social comparison is, am I enough, is the reason that I would discount somebody who has a better marriage than me or a better job than me, why would I not be attracted to that person and want to learn from that person as opposed to just discount them and push them away. We can learn a couple of things from Freud. I mean, in in Freud's convoluted, extensive theory, a lot of it we could toss out the window. But two things I can't deny. One is something called defense mechanisms. And um, Freud argued that we're constantly trying to defend ourselves, and there were 15, 16 different defense mechanisms. So um, whether he's exactly right or not, I, I can tell you from as a clinician, functionally it works. It's very, very helpful. If I can find out what somebody's afraid of, hmm. if there's a dysfunctional behavior, and my line is this, all dysfunctional behaviors that are not physiological are defensive. Say that again. All behaviors that are dysfunctional, that are not physiological, are defensive. So applying it to this question, it is dysfunctional to refuse to accept the possibility that you could learn from somebody or find success like they can. That's not, that's not healthy. Mm-hmm. So if I'm correct, then what are you afraid of? And part of what I believe people are afraid of is the unachievable. Mm-hmm. So people in the gym, oh, they're all real strong. I can't be that. The, mm-hmm. the perception, I can't. So Carl Rogers called this the ideal self and the perceived self. The ideal self is the thing that you either think you should be or you really want to be wealthy. The thing that you see that you are not quite there yet. And as you examine the gap between those, that's the level of dysfunction that appears. So if the gap is very, very small, it typically you, people are generally satisfied. The gap is very, very broad. That's when people mm. are very dissatisfied and it shows up in a lot of ways. Another component that Freud gave us was the whole idea of uh, the ego. We use the term egotist or egoist to describe people who we think are cocky or brash, super confident. Mm -hmm. I argue there's no such thing as an egotist. 
I argue that that person we call an egotist is so insecure that they're not going to wait around for somebody to compliment them. They have to throw it out there for you Mm. to make sure you know it (laughs) so that they can then massage their weak ego. Mm. So it's just the opposite of what it appears. And why those two things matter, the question that you're asking, why would somebody not try to learn from a successful person? I don't think I can achieve this, therefore I will protect myself by discounting it, just like Aesop's fables, the sour grapes. They must have been sour anyway since I can't reach them. Um, And if I admit what I really see, the difference between my ideal self and perceived self, I'm a failure. Mm. So to say I'm a failure is very, very hard and very, very scary, and very probably out of the awareness of the individual that you're talking about. The healthier person would say, wow. Even if I don't get to that level, I would like to get further than I am. Teach me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if if I'm evaluating myself, comparing myself to other people, and I look around and I feel like that there's somebody who has achieved something that I have not yet achieved, my brain can go one of a couple of ways. One is what I'm hearing you say is I can go for the I'm he he's probably doing better than I will ever do. I shouldn't even try, and maybe I need to acknowledge that I'm failing in that space, but instead of acknowledging that I'm failing, it feels better, discount them and call what they're doing a failure instead of success. Correct. Or I can take that mentality of, okay, there's there's a fork in the road, they're doing better than what I'm doing, maybe I would like to be doing what they're doing. And maybe there's hope. Maybe, maybe, so is it a hope-despair distinction? Is it a... That's probably a, that's probably a good use of words. Yeah. Like, like, like is, it, is there a belief that I can be, an optimism that maybe I won't get fully there, but at least I could head in that direction if I, if I will be humble enough to learn? And that, that humility component is, is very critical because in order to be humble, you have to be willing to face the fears of perceptions, social comparison. Mm. So for uh, let's say I was to say, Alan, I want you to teach me how to be a better accountant or marketer, something that's in your, your mm-hmm. arena that's not mine. I have to submit to you. Mm-hmm. I have to, by default, say you're smarter than me, you know more than me, on, at least in that particular area. And that submission doesn't come easy because it requires us to give up power yeah. in, in a way. And you used a really interesting word. You said despair. There's a psychosocial theorist who uses exactly that word in terms of developmental progress. People my age in their 60s and beyond he argues that the grumpy old man kind of stereotype, that's the individual who reaches life toward the end and looks back and does this thing called life review. What have I achieved? Mm. And the one who says, you know what? I was not in a great marriage. I hated my job. My kids never talked to me. I didn't achieve. He calls that despair. The, the other side of that coin is the one who looks back and say, you know what? Everything might not have gone perfect, but I think I did good. Mm. He calls that integrity, which I love that word. Mm. It's a way of saying, I took the resources I had and did what I could with it from a retrospective place. Mm. Um, What we're talking about, and it doesn't matter whether you're 60 or 20 or any place in between, that fork in the road is recognizing there will always be forks in the road. Until you Mm. take your last breath, 
Mm-hmm. It's not too late, I guess, is yeah. kind of the point. And what we do as we coach as, mm-hmm. with lead is take that person where they are at whatever age, at whatever stage, at whatever measure of the four fires and say, look, you don't have to stay there. Yeah. You know, and motivate, um, give them some sense of hope to pursue their goals and dreams and create a, an ideal self that's achievable. Hmm. You know, one of the things we talk about, um, you have been granted the dignity of choice. And the dignity of choice is that idea that tomorrow does not have to be like today or yesterday. And and there's hope in choice. And there can be some frustration because the reality oftentimes is once you acknowledge the power of choice, you have to accept your current state as a product of your past choices. That's exactly right. And if you don't like your current state, but the, but the beauty is, is that you also at the same time affirm the power of choice to change your future state. You know, a lot of times when I, when I'm coaching people and I hear them discounting, oh, well, I'm not fat, I'm just big boned (laughs) or everyone in my family is overweight or, uh, you know, kind of applying like shirking responsibility for their current state. Uh, and rather than owning their own choices, that seems more convenient. The problem with the root of that is that it undermines the power of choice for their future. That's correct. And it's a safer choice because then you don't have to do anything. <laughs> so your guy that you know, thinks all people in the gym are shallow and all wealthy people are greedy, now he, there's, there's no work to do. I, I saw a very interesting, I'm not a TV person at all, but back in probably the late 80s, early 90s, one of my students brought me this vi- this videotape of some daytime talk show. And the topic of the talk show was on uh, race. There were three African-American males that were being interviewed. Two of the three were fairly aggressive in their tone um, uh, about what their experience was in life um, and how largely Caucasians had kept them down, mm-hmm. not hired them, you know, gotten them in the way. Right. The third guy was the last one to speak, and I wish I'd kept a copy of that tape because he said this when microphone came his way. He said, I don't know what y'all are talking about. He said, when somebody puts something in my way, I will go over it. I will go around it. I will go under it. I will go through it. I'm not letting anybody, white or otherwise, stand in my way of my goals. Now, I'm not by any means denying the effects of racism and stuff. Right. That's not the point. The point was attitude. Yeah. On the one hand, we had attitude that said, I can't, because. Mm-hmm. On the other side, we had an attitude that says, I can. And the, the latter is the one that will find a higher level of success with intent. Mm. All right. So you have counseled hundreds of people, thousands of people in your career. You have coached plethora of people. How do I, as an individual, make sure that I have that learner's mentality? How do I have the attitude or recognize when I'm not in a space where I'm taking that, the, the people that you just described, the three, the three gentlemen, the first two kind of taking the victim mentality, or I'm going to dis, I'm going to place blame somewhere other than myself. How do I be sure that I'm operating in a space that's going to get me that's gonna. I, I'm trying to. I'm trying to come I, up with the words, but I, I, I want to be in a learner state. I want because you just know that the person who's discounting is not going to grow. Or I. That's my. They're not op- going to grow while in that state of that's mentality. Right. That's correct because they see no reason to do so. 
and the because I'm a writer and I'm in public a lot, I'm constantly getting feedback. And I wrote a newspaper column for, gosh, 35 years. And it got kind of tedious. I don't read the comments too often, but every once in a while I'd see, you know, postings like people do today. And I was like, why do I bother? You know, people just griping at something that I didn't say or whatever. I'm like, there's nothing I'm going to do that's going to change your mind because you've made up your mind what you thought I said and we're done. But when I'm one-on-one with somebody, mm. I have to first assess that person's level of maturity because mm. the the less mature, think 15-year-old teenager, mm-hmm. the, the less mature they are, the more certain they are they know far more than their parents or anybody else. Right. And that's a huge hurdle, which makes teens a very challenging population as therapists. Um, we get that same attitude with people who are older as well, which your mm-hmm. guy you've described may have been one. So I have to assess that level of maturity. Are you willing to reconsider anything? Could mm-hmm. it be you're wrong? So when I would read these criticisms, one of the questions I always ask myself, might, could they be right? Mm-hmm. Did I not communicate well? Did I actually say what I didn't think I said? Or mm-hmm. I at least ask that question. Yeah. That's what a m- mature person will do. That doesn't mean I just swallow anything they say, but I at least consider it. So when I'm sitting across the table from somebody, that's what I'm weighing. I'm measuring that in the Mm -hmm. way – and if I keep getting, nope, 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 I'm right. Mm -hmm. Whether they're right or not is not the point. The fact is their mentality is such that it's impossible they could be wrong. Therefore, it is impossible that we're going to move from Mm -hmm. that spot. And I do have to add one little caveat. Some – some life experiences are so traumatizing, and I use that term deliberately. It puts, it puts something in that little secretary's head that is next to impossible to undo. Mm-hmm. So if you consider women who've been sexually assaulted, mm-hmm. that can be so powerful that she can intellectually know all men are not rapists. Mm-hmm. But effectively... All men are rapists. Mm-hmm. I will never trust another man, including my husband or my sons, mm-hmm. as long as I live. And and that that takes a great energy to to oh, modify yeah. for very obvious reasons. But we can get some of that same trauma from uh, suppose that your guy had a father who was very wealthy and was greedy and ignored his son, and mm-hmm. he learned I am nothing because he liked money more than me. In, in a way, that kind of experience can be as loud and hard to overcome. So therapeutically or coaching-wise, we might need to look for that as, mm-hmm. as well. But once we, once we kind of figure what kind of maturity we have, then we, we can ask the question, are you happy? Mm-hmm. Are you happy with your body the way it is? Mm-hmm. Are you happy with your checking account? If you, could, if you could just blink and have as much money as the rich people, would you do it? Mm-hmm. Now, if somebody said, no, I don't want Bill Gates' money, I don't believe you. Yeah. Now, I believe you might not want the trouble that comes with that money. But to say you can do anything you want anywhere, anytime, anyplace, that is a natural yes. Yeah. There are hardly anybody's going right. to answer that question, no. So once we see that, say, okay, what's stopping you? Mm-hmm. Well, all my family's big boned. Okay. Mm-hmm. You can't do anything about your bones. Mm-hmm. You can do something about that 80 pounds of non-bone that's on your body. Do you want to or not? Now, I wouldn't say it quite that crass, but you get the idea. So once the door is open for reconsidering, then then there's a place to grow. And nothing breeds success better than success. 
So whether in my clinical practice, whether they're five-year-olds or 50-year-olds, if I can show them they're not stuck mm-hmm. where they think they are, mm-hmm. that success gives them courage and interest to be more. Yeah. Competence breeds confidence. And, and so showing that idea of, like, you, do, you can win a little bit here. I had a really interesting conversation last night on the phone, almost an hour with a business owner. This person had a um, very nasty divorce out of goodness of heart, signed away way too much, mm-hmm. finds yourself at you know late 50s, basically in the poverty line, mm-hmm. having to rebuild. And the, the statement that this business person made, and I was thinking the four fires as we talked about this, I'm listening. And, and she said, I'm putting as much as I can in my 401k. And I'm, I'm like, you have limited yourself. I said, you have, you have decided the best you can do is mm-hmm. try to get out of bankruptcy and build your 401k. I said, what are you not considering? And we started looking at avenues, business options, mm-hmm. housing options, well beyond what, now the right thing to do, that's not for me to say, but what, at the end of the phone call, this person thought, I didn't realize I had so many choices. Mm. And that's the point of growth. Now, what happens there is obviously you take control of your life and do what you want. Right. The more choices you have, the more free you are. Right. So freedom is just choices. And so when we, when we either are unaware that we have choices or we, we choose to not to, to dis- discount handful of you know options oh i could be wealthy or i could you know be fit or i could so are we inherently creating our own Mm -hmm. self-prison exactly we're we're choosing to live in an environment where we have less choices and that's exactly where this respect is respect issue comes where we started today is that an individual has chosen to say i'm going to choose to live at fifty thousand dollars a year whatever you make because and i'm wrapping up what we've been talking about because I am not willing to risk Mm. learning more, pursuing a goal that's really my dream or whatever the things I'm afraid of. So I'll just discount that entire group and say, nah, you don't, you guys don't know anything or whatever the issue is. Therefore I can see myself as okay. The mindsets that are required, you talked about maturity. There's a degree of maturity that a person needs to have to to be able to accept that maybe someone else is winning in a space that I'm not winning at and I could not have to discount them I could I could look at that and say I'd like to actually learn something mm-hmm. there's a degree of optimism you know versus despair around understanding that there's some power in your choices and that you can be different uh, I heard you say that there's a way for you to, if you can get some little wins and, you know, breed some confidence and uh, what, what was your, you said that uh, success, su- breeds success, success. success breeds success. So where can we get some little wins in these spaces? But it's that initial conversation that I had with the guy first, it first put me off because I was bothered by how quickly he discounted something without ever really wanting to work for it. And then my second thought was, oh no, where am I doing that? Like, where is it that I am blind to having that third party, having someone who 
will look at your life, hold the mirror up in front of you and go, hey, Alan, are you I'm just an observation? Here's what I'm seeing you do, right? Like if I can have the humility to listen to some a trusted advisor, somebody who will uh, hold that mirror, which is when we talk about the friends fire, right? Or the fr- the people fire, the part of your friends, or if you're in your professional fire, like having a coach, but having people in our lives help us to understand the spaces where we might have these blind spots. Well, self-awareness is probably on an equal footing with maturity, being mm. able to see yourself realistically. And that 15-year-old does mm. not see him or herself realistically. They think because they've had 15 long years of experience, they know more than anybody else. And it's a, kind of a natural thing as our brains develop, we get it. But being able to hear things that are hard to hear, and I've said this to to guys that I've worked with before, I'm going to tell you something and you're not going to like it. Mm-hmm. You know, I try to soften it as much as possible, but I don't pull punches because it's not helping you. And it is that external source that's sometimes necessary for us to see where we're failing in our relationships or in business or whatever. You're sabotaging yourself that we don't see. Um, when we reject truths of self-reflection from others that we trust, that's indicative of immaturity or a powerful defense mechanism that to do that is just not something Mm. that a person can cope with. So they sort of are married Mm. components, you know, that willingness to introspect or hear from a third party and the maturity to say, I've still got stuff to learn. One of my students once years ago, this kid came up to me at 19 years old, and he, he said, I'm, I haven't learned a thing in your class all semester. And I told him, and I meant this sincerely, all I said to him was, I, I'm sorry to hear that, but I've learned a lot from you. And I had. Hmm. He'd said things, he argued with me every day, and he did. He caused me to think. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to brag on myself. I'm saying it's the mentality that says, okay, I may be the teacher, I may be the PhD, but maybe there's something I can learn from that 19-year-old. For sure. And there was. Similarly, like I find myself in these places, you, I can learn from anyone. I think the thing I have to be wareful, aware of for me is when I think that there are, I find myself in a situation where I think I don't have anything to learn from someone. Anytime, and this is, I think, a rule that works pretty well, anytime a person perceives that they have arrived, huh. that should be a warning sign. When we talk about the four fires, the intent is that we are on a consistent journey. There isn't an arrival there is not this person who it, we're all on the journey, which I think we talked about the self-comparison. Mm-hmm. As we go through this journey, the healthy version of that is to look at people who might be further on their journey. The unhealthy version might be either to think that you have arrived <laughs> compared to everyone else or to have this like unhealthy, unrealistic striving. Is that mm-hmm. does that sound like a fair like? Yeah. Progress, development, and growth are healthy. Well, or, what I did, and you probably do this with your guys as well. But when I'm coaching, I I want people to come a year from now and look back and say I wouldn't be where I am mm-hmm. if I hadn't. And this is an elite commercial, but if I hadn't hired you mm-hmm. and. It's not for me, it's for them. I said, if you're in the same place a year from now, we didn't do any, we didn't right. give you your money's worth, for, first of all. And the whole point is that you're growing. So whether that means you've gone from sedentary to 
occasionally you'll walk a half a mile or whatever, or you've gone from overweight to trim or whatever, it, it is that process. And that's gonna look different at different stages of life. And some of it may seem digressive, especially as you get older, and especially in the physical fire, but it doesn't mean that we stop growing. All right, so um, last question. Are there different mindsets required for growth in any of the four, like in our professional fire versus our physical fire versus our people fire versus our purpose fire? Is there a different mental skill set that you think people need to win in those different areas? No. Okay. That's the shortest answer you'll ever hear come out of my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the belief that one can succeed is the same regardless of what you're pursuing. Now, the specifics are certainly different. And I, I think you've said this many times that two fires we're fully in control of and two fires we're not fully in control mm-hmm. of that requires some submission and mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. parties. So that certainly looks different. But the mentality, I can be as a better physical specimen tomorrow than I am today is the same mentality that says my relationship with my spouse or my kids or whatever can be better tomorrow. The same mentality that says, even though I don't feel it, my relationship with my creator or my religion can be better tomorrow than it is today. It's exactly the same set of tools. It's a growth mentality. Mm -hmm. Well, Greg, I appreciate you uh, taking some of your time to be here with us today. Four Fires Nation, we are, uh, we're honored that you are out there and on your journey. Stay aware of areas where you might be discounting people. Stay aware of places where you might put people in, uh, in boxes and think about um, how social comparison and, what do you call it, the um, reticular formation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're putting people in boxes. Uh, how that impacts your growth mentality and be mindful that uh, one of the keys to success in all of the four fires, whether it's your professional fire, whether it's your people fire, your physical fire, or your purpose fire, is that we are able to lean into each one of those areas with a growth mentality. So I think that's the the word for the day is growth mentality. I think that uh, summarizes a lot. So thank you, Greg. I appreciate you being here. Thanks, Alan. Thank you, Four Fires Nation. We'll talk to you next time.